and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, I'm interviewing David Newmey, an associate dean of faculty for STEM at SNHU. Yep, that's right, STEM. There's been a lot of talk lately about the applicability of skills learned in history and other liberal arts to a variety of careers, and Dave is a perfect example of how this works. Today we will talk about his background a bit, including an undergraduate degree in history, the role that history plays in his everyday life, and how the skills that he learned in his history degree and afterwards translate to his day job in a very different field. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, my name is Dave Newmey. I am Associate Dean of Faculty and Graduate STEM at Southern New Hampshire University. And what this means is that I have the privilege of leading the the Graduate STEM, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Management uh, instructors in the online school here at SNHU. And what is your academic and professional background? I uh, have an undergraduate degree in history education. After I earned that, I taught in small private school for a few years, and I taught everything from history to math to you know, what became my adopted field of, of uh, computers, and I taught that from elementary through uh, college uh, level. And after that, I decided to stop teaching for what I thought was going to be a few years. turned out to be a little longer than that, but because I wanted to get some practical uh, hands-on experience in my adopted field of IT or information technology. So I've worked in various IT roles and history has been a wonderful hobby on, on the side and something that I have kept up with, but not in a, a professional capacity. My new hobby since completing my MBA has been to judge uh, different robotics events that my two children are participate in. So you said that your undergraduate degree was in history. What uh, specific fields were you interested in? It was initially American history, but between my sophomore and junior year in undergrad, I had the privilege of spending a year in Cambridge, England. And I, prior to going, medieval history was just boring. And quite frankly, so was ancient history. It was, it was the part <laughs> of history that I, I enjoyed the least. But then I had the privilege to go, to go see it. I got to go to the British Museum or be walking through London, which became one of my favorite places to go. And then you see uh, segments of the Roman wall still standing. I got to visit uh, many castles and cathedrals. And then once I got to see it, once I got to experience it, history, that, that portion of history became alive to me. And since then, I have taken to visiting Nash or uh, Civil War battlefields. So that, that area has become interesting to me as well. And so you've been visiting Civil War battlefields. Um, which ones have you visited so far? The list is long. I have visited, uh, my first trip was to Vicksburg in uh, Mississippi. Quite quite an incredible uh, experience. Been to Gettysburg a couple times. We went, my family and I went on the 149th anniversary. Got to see Doris Kearns Goodwin give an amazing speech the, the night before the event. They had the lighting of the luminaries where, where um, they had candles around the, the soldiers' graves. My two daughters, prior to that, got to help place American flags around it. And it was one of the most incredible experiences. As a matter of fact, even as I tell this story, I, I get goosebumps. But at night, on the quarter hour, with just candles lighting the soldiers' graves, you would hear taps 
coming and it was it was it was it was an incredibly special experience. I visited Manasseh. <laughs> the list is long. That's great. And so you would classify at least so far your interest in history. I mean, you you were interested enough to get an undergraduate degree, but obviously the your interest in history has been uh, lifelong. Uh, even if it isn't, you're, even if even though you're not pursuing a professional career in history, it is still something that has stuck with you for your entire life so far. It is. I'm not a formal historian. I just enjoy it, but I can't help but wonder if it's uh, somewhat genetic because my father has an undergraduate degree in political science. And even though my, my dad did not say, not that any parent can say this, you you will like history. I, I found as a child, I remember reading every single book I could find on Abraham Lincoln. And I was born in Florida. And when I was eight, we moved to Minnesota. My parents made a special detour to Springfield to see President Lincoln's home because they were they recognized that I had such a great interest. And then when number of years later, we moved to Alaska. And once again, I read every single book that I could find on the history of Alaska and the Bush pilots. And, and it was pretty incredible. And what's interesting is that my I have two daughters and my youngest daughter has the same interest. And it wasn't something that I've tried to, to cultivate. But it's been like watching my life play out in front of me because she also had the has the same interest of President Lincoln. So just like my parents did for me a few years ago, we actually took a trip and we visited uh, President Lincoln's birthplace in Kentucky. We went to his home in Indiana and then later also on the same trip to his last home in uh, Springfield. And then I think it was last summer, the summer before I took her over to Hildeen in Vermont, where his only surviving son has a home. Rob, you could probably explain this better than I, but it's just kind of interesting to see how that works in family so yeah my uh my poor son has two very overeducated parents and that that poor kid is going to be subjected to uh, for from my side it's history from my wife's side it's science and so that poor mm. kid doesn't have a chance he's <laughs> he's gonna like this stuff whether he likes it or not <laughs> yeah it, it which, which is good i think that's really neat because you're you're and actually it's the same way with interestingly with my family because my wife is a science person i am a history person but it's not like i tried to force feed history it's like it's almost like it's in our genes or our dna or something i don't know how it works but it's just it's fascinating to see it play out right <laughs> well that's great that you've that you've i mean from a purely selfish perspective that's great that you're still interested in history because i <laughs> i wish more people were <laughs> so you mentioned and you mentioned numerous times of course that your your day job is in a field that is very different from history i mean you've said that you're interested in information technology, you have an MBA, uh, you're part of the STEM program at SNHU. So how do you think the skills that you learned as a as an undergraduate historian and then just, you know, skills that you've picked up as, I don't want to say amateur historian pejoratively, but uh, you're not in a formal history position. So the skills that you've picked up as a historian during your undergraduate career and afterwards, how would you, how do you think those skills manifest themselves in your current field. One of my undergraduate history instructors, he's a gentleman by the name of Mark Miller, strongly in, enforced in me and, or excuse me, instilled in me the, the value of going to the original source. So when I was an undergrad and writing history papers, he would say, your paper is going to be far better if you get as close as you can to the original source. So you look at, look at what the people themselves say are not people that were writing about it two or three hundred years later, but get as close to the source. And that is 
interestingly, uh, something that has uh, actually helped me in my IT career because when people present a, a computer problem, not that anybody would intentionally mislead or you know be somewhat untruthful, but I've taken that same lesson that Mark taught me and say, well, well, can you show me your, or, or can you replicate those steps? Or even today in my, uh, in my role here at SNHU, when I hear about a situation, I want to go and look at it myself. So that's the, that's the hist- amateur historian, which is actually a, something that I, I take with pride um, coming up in me. It's like, I want to go as close to the uh, original source. It's also taught me critical thinking skills. And quite frankly, Without strong critical thinking skills, it's I dare say it's almost impossible to be effective in a, a information technology role. It's also given me a broader perspective um, to help me think big picture, help me think long term, help me to look for the the patterns. I think it was somebody who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does run in cycles or something like that. You probably know the phrase better than I do, so... Yeah, there's the, I mean, there's the, the cliche that, you know, if you don't understand history, you're condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that type of thing. But there's actually been a lot of discussion about that. Some historians say that, well, it's not circular, but it's it's kind of a spiral shape. <laughs> <laughs> or I think it was Mark Twain who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Something like Thank that. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I, I was trying to remember. Thank yeah, you. I, I don't remember if that's, if that's Mark Twain or not. It sounds like something he would say. So we'll go with mm-hmm. that. Well, that's great. So you, um, so you mentioned some important skills that you do in your everyday job, critical thinking, going to the original source. Do you see those skills as valued by other folks in your, in your profession also? I mean, you've got this kind of background in history, so you've got, you've got it kind of built into your personality and your own personal interests. But do you see that type of thing as desirable among your peers in STEM or IT or any of those other fields? I do. It's it's something that we, matter of fact, one of the my colleagues that I work very closely with, uh, Mark LePage, who's also a SNHU alum, he's associate dean of programs here in STEM, and this is something that we talk about periodically is the importance of having critical thinking skills. Something else that having a background in history has given me is the ability to think about technology from what I like to somewhat jokingly call the human perspective, and it just isn't merely the, the proverbial bits chasing the bites. And something that people in my profession don't always do as well as they should is talk about technology or view technology from a more holistic perspective. So how, how can technology strategically or operationally benefit the organization? So having that strong liberal arts uh, historical background helps me bridge the gap between my colleagues in uh, information technology and my, my business colleagues. Gives me a broader perspective, a broader foundation. So I did a little uh, research in preparation. I isn't that something that a historian likes to do is do research, All and, the time. I, and I <laughs> and I I wondered, uh, you know, is is having this type of background is that unique to me? Am I some somebody special, or, or is this common? I, I I know that informally, a couple of colleagues, one of the senior IT directors here at SNHU, Steve Probost, uh, used to be a history teacher before he went into information technology. Another colleague, Adam Goldstein, who was an instructor, or excuse me, an assistant professor at Champlain College in Vermont, and he also teaches uh, cybersecurity courses for us here at SNHU. He enjoys history, so I, I've 
uh, you know, when we were on vacation recently, I met somebody who's a cybersecurity professional, but, but we spent more time talking about our favorite historical places that we had visited rather than our, our shared uh, shared profession. But there, there's also some other notable names. Steve Case, who is the founder of America Online, has an I believe an undergraduate history degree. Stuart uh, Butterfield, who's the founder of Slack, which is a really neat collaboration tool, his undergraduate degree is in philosophy and he has a graduate degree in philosophy and the history of science. And I want to give you a direct quote from him. He said, I learned how to write clearly. I learned how to follow an argument all the way down, which is invaluable in running meetings. So here's the leader of a very hot or prominent IT organization, Slack, but showing how his his history, his his liberal arts gave him the skills to help be successful in this. Carly uh, Fiorani, who is the former CEO of HB, she earned a degree in medieval history at Stanford. Steve Yai, who is the uh, chief executive officer at Media Alpha, which is a, a website company who earned his degree in East Asian study at Harvard, said that liberal arts helped him to think multi- facetedly. He learned how to think about things from different perspectives. And uh, Susan, I apologize, I'm going to mispronounce her name, but Wojcicki, who's the CEO of YouTube, she earned her degree in history and literature. So you, as you can see, and, and the, the list goes on and on. There, there are many of our type, even though we don't necessarily think of these uh, well-known IT leaders as having a degree in history, but you can see how it helped to make them successful in their field. Recently, I was talking with Dr. Gwen Britton, who's the executive director of STEM, about what what's after STEM. STEM right now is a very important as uh, area for SNH2. It's uh, it, it's you know our our president and f- former president Obama talked about the need to have more STEM educated professionals. It seems like you can't go anywhere without saying this. When I was in Halifax, Nova Scotia recently, I saw that in September of next year, they're going to be having a STEM STEM conference. But mm-hmm. So it's, it's the very hot thing. But what comes after this? And so I asked Dr. Britton this, and what she believes, and I absolutely agree, is that the people are going to be drawn back again to liberal arts so that way they can properly understand the societal impacts of technology. So that th- this this foundation is is, is something that we uh, we will come back to, so that way we can understand what we've created and these marvelous technological inventions. But it, it gives us a more grounded, a more holistic view of world of the world and the, of life. That's interesting. I have read articles, you know, about tech guys talking about how they want to have liberal arts folks because of, like you said before, critical thinking skills and all of that, I haven't heard as much about the idea that we're going to want liberal arts type folks to really start to figure out what, do we, what what's the world going to look like and all of that. But I, that makes a lot of sense that when it comes time to, I mean, once we've got machines doing a huge proportion of the jobs that we have now, the world is going to look very different. And so it makes sense that you'd like to have people that are trained with the type of thinking that can help make sense of the new world that we're going to be moving into. That's interesting. And obviously, as someone in the liberal arts, that's, I think that's great news. <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that becomes reality. But that's, that is a really interesting uh, idea. And uh, I, I bet we will probably see a lot more of that kind of thinking as we go forward. Absolutely. And it's, uh, we created these marvelous machines, and then they impact us. And then 
how do we deal with the impacts, you know, the, the changing world. Something else I think about more and more is, um, and, and how history benefits me in my profession is I've had a greater appreciation for what I call the wisdom of the ancients. Maybe that's a formal term and I'm borrowing it from somebody, but it sounds like a Shakespeare type thing. Okay. I'm not going <laughs> to claim <I> <laughs> ownership, but it's something I think about more and more. And it's like, you know, I, I, you know, as a good tech person, when the, uh, you know, the latest technological invention comes out, I will admit there's still part of me that salivates my, that my pulse rate increases a little bit. It's like, isn't this cool? You almost get the, the little adrenaline rush. But as I step back and enjoy my history books or enjoy visiting historical places, I find myself gaining a greater and greater appreciation for the wisdom of the ancients. So even though they didn't have the the Apple Watch that perhaps has more power than the or computational power than you know the shuttle Columbia or something like that sitting on their wrist, our forebears were incredibly intelligent people, and they laid a foundation. And I don't, speaking personally, I don't always have the the level of appreciation and gratitude for them that I should because I get so caught up in the latest technical uh, invention. I agree, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but yeah, it is, I mean, you think about the lives that we live today with all of our technological advances and yeah, like you said, those smartphones, iPads, laptops. I mean, you and I are talking over computers. I mean, we are separated by a good thousand miles or so, but we're able to talk to each other in real time, which is kind of an amazing accomplishment um, given that, you know, a hundred years ago, it just wasn't possible beyond maybe a telegraph or something, but that would be, it'd be very difficult to do this interview with over a telegraph. But it is a very different world we live in but at the same time human nature has not changed all that much and so it is probably going to be an interesting pursuit for future people in humanities and even in IT also is to kind of figure out how does a much slower changing human nature going to interact with a very rapidly changing technological world that we live in so that's going to open up all kinds of opportunities for future research projects I think absolutely and, and to that point I guess this is more of a sociology not history, my apologies. But That's all right. Th th there's actually a field of study about human factors. Usually it is human factors, things that people do that will cause the greatest vulnerabilities. It isn't like a machine sort of self-propagates and goes wild. It's a human person. So understanding what causes humans to do that and then how can we prevent that? Because we need to keep our system secure. So so to your point, yes, you're right. I think it is going to be a, a study that will be going on for generations to come. Well, that is something for us all to look forward to. I don't think we're going to solve that today, but it is something that we will all be uh, keeping an eye on. So to wrap up here, do you have any uh, history-related recommendations for us, a, you know, a favorite book or you know, an artifact or something that you've come across recently that you found particularly interesting? Oh, the list is long. I've become a real uh, fan of the national park systems. And the reason I uh, like the national park system is you can go to the place where history history happened. So we, were, we referenced earlier the various Civil War battlefields that visited the National Park Service. Uh, creates this little $10, uh, what they call a passport. And it's been fun to, to collect the stamps as I've... <laughs> been trying to see as many as I can. I did a couple of years ago read a book that I keep coming back to. It was by one of uh, President Eisenhower's sons called, or grandsons, excuse me, called Going Home to Glory. 
this is part of the, the reason why I, I, I love histories and I, and I love the, the leaders of history, particularly love reading about presidents because I, I like presidents as much as great as they accomplished. They were, they were humans just like you and I. And so the, this book going home to glory gave me insight into the person of one of our great presidents, president Dwight Eisenhower. And then after I read the book, it inspired me on a subsequent trip to Gettysburg to go, to go visit, his home which is on the corner of the gettysburg battlefield and having read the book when i went to his home i could almost see president and mrs eisenhower sitting in the rocking chair in the living room and things you know i could almost hear the imagine the conversations that president eisenhower and nikita khrushchev had when they were at his home so it's 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 pretty it's pretty neat it's a good read is this a uh, a biography of his entire life or does it focus on the specific aspect of his life it mostly focuses on what David Eisenhower, who was one of President Eisenhower's son, um, his relationship with his grandfather. So as opposed to oh, okay. you know the Battle of of D Day or something like that. So this this humanizes one of our one of our great leaders. Gotcha. Well, that sounds interesting. I will have to uh, add that to my list. So thank yeah. you for your time, and uh, I appreciate you uh, talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rob. Great, thanks. And thank you to the listeners for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>